wind and the raging waves. Suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, where is your faith? The disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man, they asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. So there's the passage. Um, and just, I'm, I'm going to give just a couple of really quick truths that we're going to pull out of this here. And I'm going to share them with you now so that way note takers uh, can take notes. And, you know, as David likes to say, all note takers, uh, 100% of note takers go to heaven. So you better take notes. Uh, but here's what we're going to find out. There's three really simple truths about who God is. Uh, number one is that God is in control. That's number one. Number two, God is good. And then number three, uh, God invites us to follow him. So uh, God is in control. God is good. And God invites us to follow him. So uh, there you go. Um, and just to start out, I want to just kind of pull the room here. So we're in the Gospel of Luke. Um, just you know, stick up a hand. Just raise a hand and, and give me like one fast fact about this book that we're in, the Gospel of Luke. In fact, don't even raise a hand. Just shout it out. Be bold. Be brave. Fun fact about Luke. Yeah. Luke was a doctor. Okay, here you go. It's a good profession right now. Yeah. Got a lot of accounts of miracles. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I know you guys know things. You're just like quiet. Christmas. Yeah. Okay. So Luke is one of the two gospels that have the Christmas story. One is Matthew. One is Luke, right? So you want to read about baby Jesus. You know, that's where you go. Sermon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. Sermon on the Mount. Or I've heard some people call Luke's version of that the Sermon on the Plain, but same kind of content. Yeah. It's, I think it says in Luke's version that he uh, gives that sermon in a, a level place. And some people think it actually might have been the same place as the Sermon on the Mount because it depends on kind of what part of the, the landscape you're looking at. <laughs> yeah, you know, one fast fact uh, that you may not know is that Luke is, I think, it's the, I think it's the longest book in the whole New Testament. Longest book in the whole New Testament. So yeah, Luke is the guy who's writing this story. He was someone who was a scientist and a historian, so he was a doctor. At the same time, he's also an historian. So he is a guy who's concerned about history. He's concerned about facts. He tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that he went all the way back and spoke to eyewitnesses, people who knew Jesus. And he got the facts straight from them. He didn't just make things up. He was concerned with accuracy. He was concerned with detail. And in fact, there have been people who have gone through Luke and then the other book that he wrote, which is called Acts, and they've just noticed the many things in his gospel that actually do square up with what we know um, from, from history and from archaeology and things like that. And so Luke is a detail guy, and that means that if you're someone here tonight who's like, man, I, I, I just don't know exactly what I think about the reliability of the Bible or about who Jesus is, Luke is your guy because he's concerned to actually speak to those who have doubts and are skeptical. So that's the book we're in, and uh, I want to just look at this first little part of the story. So this is a story that we read about a storm. Um, it's in a place called the Sea of Galilee. Um, anyone ever been there? Have anyone who's ever visited Israel before? Who's, oh, Ashley and Mac. Yeah, you guys have been to Israel. I've been to Israel. Um, so the Sea of Galilee, um, there's a picture of it up on the screen. And if you look at that thing, you kind of think to yourself, man, that's a huge body of water. You know, that's like, I don't know how... Uh, I don't know what a good comparison would be. But actually, if you look at this picture, it's really not that big. It's pretty small. And in fact, you can stand like in this picture on one side of it, and you can see all the way across to the other side. So the thing is about 13 miles wide, or 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. 
And that means that you can see most any part from any other part. And you might notice there's some mountains in the background, and um, that's an important detail because due to the way the mountains direct the wind toward the surface of the lake, the Sea of Galilee is really prone to sudden storms. And so the storm in this story was one of those, and it would have been a particularly bad one because you have to remember, first of all, the disciples are all fishermen by trade, meaning that they're on this lake all the time, and, and they would have been very, very used to storms. And so in this story, what, what do you read? You read that they're completely freaked out, they're completely panicked, um, they sound a little bit like the news media. And, 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 and so what that tells you is that this storm was a particularly bad one. It was a whopper. And on top of that, if you look at Mark's version of the same story, he actually tells you that this storm most likely happened at night, which would have made everything worse because, you know, everything that happens at night is scarier, right? And then finally, there's the disciples' boat. Now, um, just trying to think of a good way to demonstrate this. You know, so just... Question for you, how big do you think the disciples' boat actually, well, there's the picture of it. Okay, never mind. I was going to have you guess how big the boat is. The boat that they were in, as you can see in this picture, was actually pretty small. In fact, I would say that if you were to like, look at that wall, and that were kind of one end of where the boat was, I would say that like, the boat would probably be only about from like here to here. See that? So imagine that you're like with 12 guys, 13 guys, because you got Jesus in there too. You've got that many guys packed in a tiny little boat, and then there's this huge storm that happens. And uh, you know, if you look at this picture, you might look at this and think, well, man, you know, that's a, a pretty nice boat. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, like a, a Bayliner or a, or a sea cruise. I don't know all the boat brands. But uh, here, let me just show you another picture here. This gives you some perspective. This is a, a picture of a boat they actually found from the Sea of Galilee that's like 2,000 years old. So this would have been like the kind of boats that they had in Jesus' time. And you can see this thing is tiny. This thing's pretty tiny. So, uh, you know, I know that we're actually speaking to a, a, a potentially seafaring audience because we're here in Gig Harbor. Anyone actually have a lot of experience out on boats? Okay, I, Olivia. Okay, I was talking to Olivia last week. And I think I'm embarrassing her. I'm sorry. But uh, you should talk to Olivia about her sailing experience. Very interesting. Anyone else who's been out on boats? Whitney, Whitney yeah, okay. Okay, now, any, anyone got any crazy storm stories? Jessica? So you guys almost flipped a 40-foot sailboat. Wow. Okay, so that's, uh, can anyone beat that? <laughs> Alex, can you beat that? Yeah, well, okay, so, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to top you guys because I don't think I can, but, you know, like, I did middle school sailing camp, and I remember being out on these little boats, and, you know, this is like Wallachet Bay, so this is like super, super, you know, not, not very rough or anything, but I just felt like an idiot the whole time because, you know, you have to get the sail right, you have to get the, you know, you have to get the rudder right, and I felt like half the time I was moving way too fast to be comfortable because there was too much wind, or there was no wind at all, I was just kind of there, not really sure what to do with myself. What it felt like was that I was totally at the mercy of nature, totally at the mercy of nature, 
And this is probably how the disciples are feeling because, you know, nature is this paradoxical thing. Um, it's, it can be totally graceful, totally beautiful, and totally terrifying at the same time. And in fact, one of the things that I think is actually happening right now is that God is, is using this coronavirus outbreak that we're, we're seeing as a way to demonstrate that he's God and that he's the one in charge. I mean, today I was just convicted thinking about the number of things that I have been trusting in that are not Jesus. I mean, just think like how easy it is to trust in the systems that human beings have built for our sense of security. And, you know, those things can be really great. You know, they can be like the hospital system or the economic system or anything. And I just feel like through this, God is just reminding us that like he is the only one who is trustworthy. I mean, he's able to take something, like a tiny little virus that no one can even see, and he can use that to bring the entire world to its knees, to humble us, and to remind us that, man, like, we have been trusting in the wrong things. And this is probably how the disciples felt, that all of a sudden nature just comes, becomes completely unpredictable, and they panic. And what they say in verse 24 is, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And then, as you know, this, you probably know the story. Jesus gets up, and he calms the storm. And, uh, and, and Mark's version says that it only takes three little words. All he says is, peace, be still. And instantly, the sea goes completely calm. So what you would have witnessed if you were one of those disciples is a, a total demonstration that Jesus is Lord over nature. You know, the sound of his voice, the wild and terrifying forces of nature are subdued. And that's why in that moment, in verse 25, they ask, who is this? Who is this? And the reason they do that is because the only other time that nature has ever obeyed a person's voice, anyone know where this is? It's Genesis chapter 1, when God speaks and creates the universe. So for Jesus to be Lord over nature is a sign that he is God and not just a mere man. And if he's God, then what that means is that he is in control. He's in control of the storm. He's in control of the disciples' lives. And he's in control of every part of our lives. Because the God of the Bible is the God who's the creator. And, you know, think about what that means for who God is. If God is the creator, it means that he's powerful. You know, there's nothing that's too hard for him to do. It means that God is sovereign. It means that there's nothing that's beyond his control. And, you know, think about what this means for what God has done. It means that the only reason that anything exists is because of God. Like everything is something that he created. It means that God brings order out of chaos. Because when the earth was formless and void, God speaks and he made a world of beauty and balance. And he can do the same thing today. And then finally, just think about what that means for who we are. Because if God is creator, then what that means is that we are his creatures. And to be a creature is to be, it's not to be self-sufficient. It's not to be independent. It's to be completely, utterly vulnerable. Completely and utterly dependent. I mean, just look at, look at the way that we try to conduct our lives. I mean, billions of dollars are spent every day that are trying to convince you that you are the one in control. I mean, like, this is what, like, the whole philosophy of Amazon is built around. Like, you go on their website, you know, you look up, I don't know, what, tell me, someone tell me something you recently bought on Amazon. Games. Games. What did you say, Austin? Shoe glue. Shoe glue. Okay, I thought you said shampoo. Like... <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, so, you know, you go on Amazon, you look up 
games or shampoo or toilet paper or whatever, you know, and, and, and like you click the button, you buy it in one click, and it comes to your house in like 24 hours. Yeah, and Parker's the one who delivers it to you. That's right. That's right. And it makes you feel like, man, I'm the one in control. Like I can just kind of configure my life and, and, and just like surround myself with all the things that make me happy. I'm the one in control. That's the whole idea behind consumer choice. Or, you know, like this, this is like what we think about career as. You know, like if I work hard in school, then I can control what college I go to or what job I get. You know, and then I can control how comfortable of a lifestyle I live. Then I can control like what house I buy, what neighborhood I live in, you know, what school my kids go to. And look, like all of this is just this total lie. Like I can't even take a breath unless God gives it to me. So man, like when a storm comes along, when, when like the circumstances that we're watching in the world right now come along, we flip out because the illusion that we're in control has been shattered. But I just want to ask, like, what would it mean if God were the one in control? What would it mean if God were the one in control? Uh, you know, those of you who know Jake Chambers have probably <clears throat> been walked through this before, but I want, you to, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine the following. I want you to imagine that in the palm of your hand, you're holding a marble. And that marble is the universe. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of galaxies contained just in that little marble. And then just with your mind's eye, I want you to imagine that you're zooming in into that marble and you're just like zooming past all kinds of stars and planets and galaxies. And you keep on going and then finally you come to our galaxy. And it probably is taking you a long time to get there. We're so small, our galaxy, compared to the billions of ones that exist. And you see our galaxy, and it zooms in on the part where you see our solar system. And you see the sun and the planets, and then it kind of finally comes to rest on planet Earth. And there's Earth. And it looks so big. Uh, but then it kind of zooms in on, on our country, on the Pacific Northwest. It zooms in on Gig Harbor and even the, the building that we're meeting in right now. And all of that is just the universe as a marble in God's hand. And I just want you with your eyes closed still and just with that image in your mind, just, man, think about what it would mean if that really is true. If God is really holding the universe in his hands like a marble. Like, what would that mean for the way that you read the news in the morning? What would that mean for the way that you react to unexpected circumstances in your life? You can open your eyes now. What would it look like if God were really in control? You know, man, there was a verse that just convicted me a couple of weeks ago that I put up on my board that just says, it's from Psalm 46, it says, be still and know that I am God. That just basically means, like, be still and know that God's in control. Like, God's in control of your family. God's in control of your workplace. He's in control of your salary. He's in control of, the, of your church. He's in control of Thrive. You know, he's in control of your dark night of the soul. He's in control of coronavirus. He's in control of the economy. You know, he, you as a disciple of Jesus get to have a front row seat to God as the God who's in control. So that's the first thing the story tells us. 
is that this is the kind of God that we follow. Um, and the second thing here um, related to that is just really simple. It's just that God is not only in control, he's also good. Um, so look at verse 24 again. So in Luke's version, the disciples in verse 24 say, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Uh, but Mark actually fills in more of the conversation. And in Mark's version, here's what they say. They say, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? You see, that's a little bit, a little bit of a different accusation there. Now, you know, if, if, if I were in the boat and, uh, and if I didn't know that Jesus is God, my question would basically be, you know, Teacher, is there anything you can do to save us? It would be a question of ability. But the disciples' fear is actually not so much that Jesus can't do anything, but that he isn't willing to do anything. You know, they see him asleep in the boat, and their fear is that he just doesn't care about them. And that just kind of raises a whole separate category of questions. You know, like, what if, what if God were not willing? You know, what if God were in control, but he just abandoned us to be swallowed up by, by the wind and the waves? I mean, if that's the kind of God that, that he is, then... then I don't think we would want to be with that God. You know, I, I think we would either hate him or be scared of him. And, and we would never be able to trust his heart and trust that his heart is for us. But here's a story that shows that God is in control and that he is good. Because the disciples discover that, like, as it turns out, Jesus is not only able, he is willing. He gets up and he calms the storm and he, he calms the storm even when they have their theology totally wrong. I mean, like, if you really believe that Jesus is in control, would, you know, if you really believe that he's good, would you come to Jesus in a panic like this? Well, no. I mean, you, you, you do what Jesus did. You fall asleep in the boat. But, but even though they come to Jesus in the wrong way, even though their theology is totally backwards, Jesus calms the storm for them anyway. And, and sometimes it's easy to think, like, man, Jesus loves me more or less in proportion to the size of my faith. You know, like, if I and like really, really confident, then, oh man, like God must love me more. Or if I'm really, really like full of doubts and full of skepticism, therefore God must love me less. And that's just not true. I just want to be a straight shooter and say that what you're doing is you're equating God's opinion of you with your feelings. And man, if you look to your own feelings as a thermometer of, of, of what the heart of God is, you are going to be constantly going in circles and circles and circles with no anchor, no rock. The love of God has nothing to do with the size of your faith. God's love is, is part of his nature. There's nothing that you can ever do to change who God is. And it says in the Bible that the reason that God chose you to be a part of his family is not because your faith was greater, not because you got freaked out or didn't get freaked out by the storm in the boat or by, you know, the, the economy collapsing or whatever it is. Like, no, like God, the Bible says that God chose us just because he loved us. And that is so cool because what that means is that when you're having a bad day and you feel like, man, I'm just such a terrible Christian because of all these doubts I have, you don't have to put that on yourself because God never will put you on his team because you were like an asset to him or because you were somehow better than other people. On those days, you can simply say, wow, wow, God loves me just because he loves me. He loves me just because he loves me. <laughs> if God were just powerful, he'd be a brutal dictator. If he were just loving, he'd be a sentimental pushover. But if he's both powerful 
and he's love, he'd be worthy of our worship. And by the way, I want to just not pass over this moment without saying that the one place where this is most demonstrated is on the cross. On the cross. Because on the cross, this is the Son of God. This is God in the flesh. You know, the most powerful being that, 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 that ever is, that ever was. And on the cross, he takes all of that power and he's willing to reduce himself to weakness. And he was willing to reduce himself to weakness in order that his great love might be put on display for all of humanity. On the cross, Jesus bears on his own shoulders all of our sin, all of our fear, all of our anxiety, all of our sickness. It goes on his back and he takes it upon himself and he does away with it. And that's one of the reasons why in the Bible, one of the most exciting things that the Bible says about the cross is that it wasn't just sort of this this demonstration solely of the weakness of God, but it was also a demonstration of the power of God because on the cross, it was the greatest act of Satan having his own plans backfire on him. You know, God only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. There is no scheme of his that will ever come to fruition or full completion because every single thing that he does will just backfire on his own head. Every single thing, every single thing. And that includes the cross where God uses Satan's greatest scheme and it backfires right in his face and he triumphs over him. It says in scripture, he, he triumphed over the powers and he, he, he did, subjected them to public disgrace. The cross is the one place where God's love and God's power come together in full display. So we've seen that God's in control. We've seen that God is good. And then there's one last thing. Really, really simple, right? These are all pretty simple points. But just this last thing, God invites us to follow him. And here, I just want to raise the question, okay, like if this is who God is, then what on earth does that mean like for how we can live? You know, I remember once I was standing um, in a cemetery. This is a little bit weird, but one of my very favorite things, not very favorite things, one of the things I enjoy doing, okay, is, is actually really enjoy walking through cemeteries. And, and the reason I enjoy doing this is because it just kind of reminds me of my mortality. It reminds me of like the bigger picture and it helps me have an eternal perspective. And I remember once I'm in this cemetery and, and I'm just like amazed because first of all, this is in like one of the most beautiful places you can imagine. It's like this big field out a little south of Spokane and you're like surrounded by these wheat fields. There's this old little chapel that hasn't been used in like probably, you know, a couple dozen years and then there's this cemetery and I'm walking around and like, like tons of these headstones are like headstones of people who like really clearly, truly knew Jesus. Like, you know, I saw this one that had the quote from the book of Joshua where it's like, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I was like, oh man, I wish I could have met this guy, you know? And then there was another one and it was this, it was, it was a little bit of a sad story, but it was a, a, a high school girl who had died in, a, in a, an accident but around her headstone, she had lit, like they had literally written her testimony of how she had come to know Jesus. And I thought, wow, like this is someone that I'm going to see in heaven someday. Like it was a really moving moment. And I'll tell you what I thought as I was experiencing all of this. I thought to myself, oh my gosh, like this is the worst that could happen to me. Like the worst that could happen to me is that I die and you know, I get buried a couple inches underground and just kind of get to twiddle my thumbs for a while until Jesus comes back. I rise again and get to be with him forever. 
Do you even think about that? Like, I just thought to myself, you know, like, man, why is it that I am so inclined to not take risks when the worst thing that could happen to me is actually, like, pretty good, you know? Like, when you realize that the world really can't do a whole, you know, like, this is the worst the world can throw at you, it's just, like, getting to be with Jesus forever. It kind of gives you a new perspective on how you live life. And I just want to say, like, if it really is true that God's in control, And if it really is true that God is good, then that has a profound impact on the freedom that we can have in following him. So look at verse 22. uh, Verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So this is the beginning of the story that we read. And what I want you to notice is that according to Luke, this whole expedition uh, is Jesus's idea. Um, And and the the reason that that they are in harm's way out on the lake is because Jesus wanted them to be out on the lake. And the reason that Jesus wanted them to be out on the lake was because, according to verse 22, they wanted to cross to the other side. Now, theoretically, couldn't they have stayed on shore? You know, couldn't Jesus have just said, you know, um, you know, it's great that you guys want to follow me and all. And I'm about to go on this lake and I know there's going to be this big storm. But you guys just stay there. Don't actually follow me. Well, no. Jesus invites them to come into a place of risk and to follow him into it. And, you know, so often, if you're a person who's hung around a place like a church before, you might have heard the phrase, you know, we have to step out of the boat, which is sort of a reference to what Peter did that one time when Jesus is uh, walking on water and Peter sees him and says, hey, Lord, you know, if it's, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me to step out of the boat and to walk on the waves with you. And so Peter steps out of the boat and uh, he walks on water, at least for a little while. But man, like, as much as it's important to actually step out of the boat, <laughs> you, actually, you have to actually like, step into the boat first. And imagine if the disciples had not stepped into the boat with Jesus into this story. Because what you find out is that the reason that Jesus goes to the other side of the lake is because of the story that uh, comes next. What happens next is Jesus gets to uh, a region called uh, the, the region of the Gerasenes. Do you guys remember the story? There's a guy who has all these demons and Jesus casts this guy out of all of his demons and he goes on to be this amazing evangelist to all of these different areas. And he spreads this word about Jesus all because they crossed to the other side of the lake. So in verse 23, if there's a slide for this, see if you can throw up verse 23 there, Whitney. In verse 23, I love this. It says that when the disciples are on the lake, it says that they were in real danger. I mean, it doesn't kind of airbrush that. It just says, look, you know, they, they, they were in danger. But the thing is, like, as a result of, of choosing to follow Jesus, they get to follow him into an amazing God moment where they get to see these incredible miracles and they get to see um, God completely turn a whole city upside down. I mean, so often we say, I want to see God move in my life. You know, like I want to see God do this really big thing. I want to see revival, blah, blah, whatever it is. Have we actually accepted Jesus's invitation to get into the boat? Have we actually accepted his invitation to pay a little bit of a cost in order to actually follow him closely enough to see what he's going to do? And man, and just and different things I've been, I've been pondering and listening to, uh, just been really exciting to me to hear Christian leaders around the world talk about the, the times that we're living in. And the times that we're living in, in, in the opinions of some, are, are days that could, they believe, one day spill over into revival. You know, we're seeing things around the world. We're seeing the world become interconnected in a way that we've never seen it before. 
Um, And we're seeing movements of Christians around the world who are coming to Jesus. We're seeing Christians from one continent move to a different continent. God is shaking things up in the world. And all of those things could very well be setting the stage for revival. I think the question is, are you actually willing to pray for that? Are you actually willing to accept the summons of God to actually be a warrior on your knees and to pray for what God wants to do in our world, in our community, in your life? You know, if your life is a car, you probably have heard this before and you think you know what I'm going to say. But, uh, you know, they say that if your life is a car, um, that, you know, you're the one in the driver's seat, you think that you're in control. And that if you invite Jesus into your car, he's going to say, okay, I want you to sit in the passenger seat and I'm going to sit in the driver's seat and I'm going to drive you around because I'm the one in control. Well, no, what Jesus really does is he says, I want you to get out of the car. I want you to get into the trunk. I'm going to close the trunk. And now I'm going to drive you where you need to go. I mean, I think if any of you have actually like had these kinds of moments, you know that this is sometimes how God works. Amen. Can I maybe raise your hand if you can relate to that story? Okay, I know I can. Yeah, so, so following Jesus is never safe. It's never safe. There's always is genuine risk and danger that goes along with it. But we don't need to live in fear. And we don't need to lose heart because we serve a God who's in control. And we serve a God who's good. So uh, just to close here, I want to throw up one last picture of uh, some friends of mine. Uh, Their names are Fred and Vicky. You might actually remember Fred because he has spoken at Thrive once a long time ago. Uh, And they are a couple whose family have become friends of mine. Um, They live in the States, but for 25 years, Fred and Vicky were missionaries in Ethiopia. They raised four kids there. And uh, Fred is a pretty risk-taking guy. I remember once he told me a story about how when they first came to the village where they eventually wound up living, it was a village that was of tribal people who lived off of livestock. That was their, that was their livelihood. And Fred and Vicky were missionary uh, veterinarians. And so as missionary vets, their strategy was, you know, let's see if we can go into these places. Let's see if we can live there among the people and, and use that as a way to share Christ with this community. And so they, they, they show up and they, they come to this village and the, the leaders of the village say, well, uh, we want you guys to stay in this house. We're going to lock the doors and we're going to spend probably 48 hours uh, trying to decide whether or not we're going to kill you or whether we're going to let you stay. Can you imagine getting that news? So uh, Fred and Vicki, they go in the house and they kind of just wait patiently for one day, two days while these village elders are making the decision about whether or not they're going to kill them or whether they're going to let them live. And I remember Fred told me that they slept just like babies for, for the entire experience. And that they just, you know, they realize, well, you know, like the worst that could happen is that they kill us and we get to go and be with, with Jesus. Um, or um, they let us live and we get to preach Jesus and, and be salt and light where he's called us. And because they knew that God is good, because they knew that he was in control, they were able to just be completely at peace. You know, I'm not saying that this is always how uh, I react. I know I, I, that's not true. Um, but man, this is, this is what we have on offer. This is what um, God is, is able to do in our lives because of who he is. And so um, I just want to, tonight as we move into small groups, just invite you to, to just kind of consider your own heart and just say, man, like, um, what are the things that kind of lead me to be living in fear, to be anxious? Um, you know, and just ask yourself, man, is there an invitation from the Lord here um, to step into the boat and to actually trust that, man, like, if, if I'm following Jesus, then he has my best interests in mind. He'll hold me in the palm of his hand. Um, so let's move on to small groups now, and uh, we'll take some time to discuss these things. Uh, let me pray.
Uh, Lord, thank you for this night, and just thank you, Lord, that you um, are in control, that you are good, and um, Lord, that no matter what our lives hold or what the future holds, um, no matter what um, circumstances surrounding the coronavirus hold, Lord, that you can be trusted. Um, So, Lord, I pray that you would just um, help us to um, follow you closely like the disciples did, to be on the offensive and not on the defensive, and to not allow the enemy to um, push us down or to hold us back, but, Lord, just would you help us to um, just prevail in prayer and prevail in, in looking to you as our confidence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.